Welcome to Skip the Queue, a podcast for people working in or working with visitor attractions. I'm your host, Kelly Molson. Each episode, I speak with industry experts from the attractions world. In today's episode, I speak with Douglas Quimby, co-founder and CEO of Arrival. Douglas and I chat through a few topics covering the economic outlook for 2023, the big shift in discovering new experiences, ticketing tech, and a little bit on dynamic pricing. If you like what you hear, you can subscribe on iTunes, Spotify, and all the usual channels by searching Skip the Queue. Douglas, thank you so much for joining me on the Skip the Key podcast today. I'm so excited that you could come on. Well, beyond thrilled to be here. Thanks so much for the invitation, Kelly. Very, very welcome. Straight into our icebreaker. So, Doug, I would like to know, do you have any hidden talents that we should know about? Hidden talents? Uh, Let's see. I actually was a music major in college, and I have a music degree and studied composition and piano. Uh, haven't done much with that talent in some time, <laughs> much to my wife's chagrin. She complains about it. She And I get a little embarrassed about it. Like we'll have friends over and she wants me to play the piano for everybody. And, and I get a little self-conscious about it. So that's actually one of my commitments to my wife is I'm going to get our piano tuned. I'm going to start practicing again. And I'm not going to be bashful about playing when we have people over or when she wants me to. Oh, I think that is that is such a wonderful talent. Um, I, I genuinely said to my husband a couple of weeks ago, if there was two things that I could do, one would be I'd really love to be good at languages and then I would really mm. love to learn to play the piano. I think it's great to be able to do that. Do you not find it quite mindful as well when you play? Well, I, I do. And actually, when we had our two boys... I made a deliberate effort of teaching them to play piano. And so for years, they I would sit down every day or maybe almost every day, four or five days a week and make them practice. And we also hired a teacher to come in. And, and But uh, a lot of stress with that, you know, with mm-hmm. forcing, uh, you know, two boys to play the piano and sit down every day. And I can tell you, it was not always mindful and peaceful. <laughs> <laughs> Anyone who's raising kids, right, will will know, right? So I think once, I've, w- when they turn 15, like, okay, if you want to go and do something else, that's fine. And I just, you know, took a pause from the whole thing. So, but yes, I think as we get older, I yeah, I would get back in and there are moments when you can be mindful and just yeah, relaxing and pleasant. Okay. All right. Next one. What is your ultimate guilty pleasure song? A guilty pleasure song? Oh yeah, I know, but I don't. I don't know the name. Are you going to sing even... it for us? Oh goodness, what's the song? <laughs> um, there's also that song by the Black Eyed Peas. I'm terrible with names. I've got. I've got a feeling. Yeah, and so that's one. Like sometimes I'll put that on with my boys in the car, and we'll totally jam out together, like we're like we're dancing or on stage. But no, let me um. Okay, now that's important. This is an important question. It and is while an important question. I genuinely know, so. thought that you were going to break out into song and, and do it that way, Doug. I thought that was where oh, you were going with this. Well, you I, can if you want. Feel free. Oh, my goodness. Um, gosh. It's also what happens when you get older. I just find... The suspense is killing, it's killing us. An easier final question for you. What is the one thing that you would like to do this year that you've never done before? Well, this is going to be a kind of boring one. I've had a pretty amazing career. I've been able to travel to so many different places and have so many amazing experiences. And in particular, working in what you know we at Arrival, we call the best part of travel, right? So tours, activities, and attractions, all of those things that travelers do when they get there. I've, you know, I've been beyond fortunate to have an opportunity to just meet so many amazing people whose whole lives are all about delivering amazing experiences to people. So I've done things like when I was in Dubai at ATM uh, through an industry connection, we did a climb up a sand dune in Sharjah. And then when we came down, we had an ice bucket, like an ice immersion experience. And so I don't, so things like that. Are, so I, when I think about like bucket list stuff, I don't know. It's that, to me, that's not as important. Um, my commitment this year is my 17-year-old is in his senior year in school. And he's going to be going to college in the fall. And I've had so much travel and devoted so much of my life to starting, well, to my career and then starting Arrival and building it over the past five years or (laughs) keeping it afloat over the last two. And so now I'm 
I'm actually committed to I'm not doing any travel other than what's absolutely essential until he goes to school. And I'm going to spend as much time as possible with him and make sure that he knows as he goes off into the world how much his father is behind him and has his back. That's a great answer to to the question, Doug. And I think that is the most brilliant thing that you could be able to do right now. And I'm sure that he will very much appreciate that time with you as well. Well, I, I hope so. Nothing more important. Absolutely not. Right, Doug, it's time for your unpopular opinion. What have you prepared for us today? Well, uh, my unpopular opinion, I, well, I don't know if it's unpopular or not. You can tell me, but I, I'm continually amazed at how terrible so many attractions are at marketing to travelers and understanding the traveler psyche and understanding how travel distribution works and uh, it's completely different from how a kind of a local thinks about visiting an attraction or having an experience and so how you find them how you target them how you get into their mindset uh, that's one piece. And then the other piece is also understanding travel distribution and the systems and how to optimize that. It's something that's uh, dramatically overlooked. So here's just one example. In fact, um, we, you know, one of the things that we do at Arrival constantly is we're, we pulse the industry on a variety of trends to get a sense of what's happening, especially over the past two and a half years, which has been so crazy for for all of us. Uh, well, now I guess it's it's three years now, is it? Yeah, it's, it's, it's almost mm-hmm. it's coming up on three years since the pandemic started. So just here's one example. In 2022, in a, in a survey we had done of uh, almost 400 attractions over the past year, 23% are not using a modern booking or ticketing system to manage their business. So, I mean, just uh, to me, that's that's I mean, it's it's incomprehensible. It's I, I have a hard time wrapping my head around it. I mean, think about it from like an airline perspective or a hotel perspective. Like, imagine if twenty three percent of airlines did not use a central reservation system, you know, or imagine if twenty three percent of hotels did not have a property management system. I mean, that travel wouldn't exist, right? The way it the way it does today, it wouldn't even be possible. So, I find it interesting. I mean, it's a real challenge to the industry. And it's very common, I think, across experiences, you know, people get into this business or an attraction is started because it's based on a mission. They may have a cultural mission. It may be a not-for-profit. They may uh, or they may be passionate about, like, say, in the case of the tours world, like a, they want to be out in the water, taking people on kayak tours or walking yeah. them up a mountain. But at the same time, to have a business to be able to deliver those experiences, to be able to advance the cultural mission, you want to have as many people come to your attraction as possible. You want to share that. And that requires an investment in the operation, in the business. It requires understanding who the customer is. And it, but it's a natural thing of most businesses. You tend to be focused on your own product or your own thing, but you also have to you know, shift and think about the orientation of the customer and where they are and what they're they're looking for. So I, that's a real, I don't know if it's an unpopular opinion because it's frankly, it's just a fact. <laughs> you know, it's, it's just a fact when I see how most attractions market their experience to travelers and uh, the challenges that the travel industry has, for example, in accessing attraction ticket inventory when i see that less than one percent of attractions worldwide engage in any kind of dynamic uh dynamic pricing uh, which is not just a tool to charge more money it's actually a tool for things like optimizing the guest experience because you can uh, more effectively disperse your customer demand over the course of a day or a week in order to make it a better experience for everybody. So there's a, yeah, there's a lot of things we can unpack over the next, you know, half an hour or so that we chat, but I, I would love to see attractions really, you know, take travel, you know, seriously, right. As, cause it's can be such an incredibly important demand channel, right. There's so much opportunity that's, that's missed in the, the world of attractions. I would love to know what listeners think about this. So as ever, if you, if you want to feedback on Doug's unpopular opinion on our Twitter account, feel free 
Um, there's definitely a conversation. I mean, there's a whole podcast piece around your unpopular opinion. I think that we're going to touch on a couple of the mm. of the subject matters from it today. But yeah, I think there's a whole piece around exploring that. I, I would. I don't know how unpopular it is because I would tend to agree with you. And I think, like okay. you said, it is a fact. I think the attractions industry has moved on dramatically in from a digital perspective in the since in the last three years mm-hmm, they were sure. forced to move quicker they were forced to innovate they were forced to introduce things that they might have been thinking about doing them but might have taken another two or three years to actually implement because they had to but I think that some of those decisions and some of the things that they've implemented have been done in a quite rudimentary way because there was a time element attached to it you know in the UK we, we attractions couldn't open unless they could do pre-booked and timed tickets yeah small attractions I mean all of a sudden you've got to have the infrastructure to be able to implement that you've got to find the right booking system you've got to be able to pay for those things for you to be able to open so yeah but this stuff is not um, this is not rocket science you know no one needs to have expertise in (laughs) artificial intelligence or you don't need to in fact you know a lot of the systems that are out there today this is one of the most amazing things in the world of say in the the tours and activities segment of the experiences industry, which has many more smaller businesses, you know, there's been an absolute revolution over the past mm-hmm. decade. There has been uh, literally dozens upon dozens of startups uh, that have stepped into the market. They offer very simple, easy to use, you know, SaaS platforms. You can get your business up and running within a couple of days, uh, if not if not less, you get your tickets loaded and you flip a switch and you can start selling that stuff directly through online travel agencies, through other resellers. You can set different rules. and pri- I mean, and this is stuff where often you're, it, there's not even an upfront cost. It's just your own internal resources. So there's been a, a dramatic change within the, kind of the enterprise software side of the sector that has opened up you know, all of these avenues to, uh, to this industry. Now, of course, it's, it's one thing if if you're a small, you know, tour company and you do five or six departures, you know, a week and you're a one or two person shop and you're a visitor attraction, you know, with uh, thousands or tens of thousands of guests, guests a year, and you've got a operations and you have a board or you have, of course, there's a lot of other things to consider there as well. But I think especially, you know, heading into 2023, when, you know, despite, some of the economic clouds that we might touch on a bit. I mean, this is going to be a uh, an incredible year for travel and an incredible opportunity not to be in a position to take full advantage of that. There's there's no there you know there's no reason for it. And and again, I think for uh, for attractions, especially those that have a not for profit you know mission. I mean, some of the great and even. Like there are so, even where I live in Atlanta, Georgia, there are some terrific and very small uh, local museums and places to visit that explore history of the South and in small towns here outside of Atlanta, for example, or the Atlanta uh, the, the the city history museum. And but you know, accessing the content and discovering it as a consumer is hard. It's not it's not easy and and uh, there's just a it, so it's just a huge you know missed opportunity. Uh, mm-hmm. Of course, there's a lot of you know the, the the big attractions, the great ones. They do a great job, and I I mean I've there are many amazing. I want to be clear too. There are many incredible travel marketers within the world of attractions, right? So and you all know who you are and you're out there. <laughs> so I just want to say for those of you like it's this is not aimed at you, but it is aimed at I think the the mid to long tail of amazing experience operators out there that could just benefit so much more and not just benefit themselves commercially but you know benefit people who haven't experienced their attraction haven't experienced their you know their museum or that little you know that special thing that they create that could be that could delight so many more people yeah i agree there's lots yeah, well, to unpick, <laughs> lots to unpick here, okay. let's, well let's yeah. let's go back to what you said so let's let's take a look at the economic outlook for 2023 because mm-hmm. there's there's a lot going on there is a lot of opportunities there's also a lot of pressure at the moment um yeah. so in the uk so so 2022 we really focused a lot about staffing challenges and the rising cost of labor that was a that was a huge topic across the across the board mm. that's still a cha- challenge but in the uk especially we have got currently a very high cost of living crisis um utility yeah. costs have been driven up predominantly by the war against ukraine 
we have attractions that are reporting a rise of between 200 and 900 percent in their electricity gas bills so there's been a recent um publication in the guardian saying that rising costs have led to staff redundancies they've curtailed open hours and nine out of ten sites fear that they could close permanently and that's in Mm. castles museums and theaters Mm. that's really drastic you know that's the that's the real bad end of what's going on at the moment we've had things like Train strikes in in the UK, which are a necessary evil. Um, I am personally and for one, and uh, I support I support the rail strikes, but they do have a huge impact, um, especially on theatres. People that are going into to London suddenly can't get into London, or they have to drive into London, and it bumps the cost up for parking. All kinds of things going on. There's still very few visits from international travellers, although that's on the rise. But Asia is only just opening up the borders so you know we still have a lot of attractions that are very heavily dependent on international tourism that are nowhere Mm. near back to the visitor numbers that they did that that, that they should be at and (laughs) just to throw into the mix we know from speaking to many attractions that marketing budgets are looking to be cut this year because of the high cost of utilities being risen so marketing budgets could be cut by about 15 to 20 percent in the uk what does it look like, Doug, for you? Because you, you're US based, but you you travel yeah. a lot. You, you you speak to a lot of US and international uh, and European based attractions. Is it a similar story there? What's what's happening? It's not uh, actually. It's it's fortunes are quite mixed. I think the UK in particular and parts of Europe are are being hit uh, especially especially hard. Uh, in the United States. It's a very different picture. In fact, it's, you know, it's one of the most confusing times in terms of trying to forecast what the economy is going to do. Everyone is talking about recession. It seems like the Federal Reserve here is committed to putting the country into recession by uh, uh, tamping down inflation and, you know, raising interest rates. But at the same time, our federal government has... Uh, just you know, they pushed through at the end of last year a 1.7 trillion dollar you know spending package, and so there's it seems like we've got the Fed and the government kind of at odds in terms of where the economy should be going. We are seeing mass layoff. Well, mass layoffs is probably a strong word, but widespread layoffs in certain sectors like like tech and in certain areas of the corporate world, uh, an expectation that earnings are going to be depressed. And this is in the US, but I think also globally through the first half of this year. Yet at the same time, the labor market is is extremely tight. Uh, there's a lot of demand. We just had our conference uh, in our Las Vegas in October. And for all the talk of recession, you know, the hotels were full, the casinos were packed. We, we had a hard time getting restaurant reservations to, you know, feed the team uh, during the event. So it's a very, you know, it's a very, very confusing time. I think one of the things that I think every attraction uh, needs to be thinking about, and and honestly, it's not even an attraction. I, I, this is, what I'm going to say is not... Um, I think it applies to to all industries, although I think in particular with regard to to travel and to experiences, because there's one, there's still you know very clear demand for getting out and doing things. There is still we're still very much in a kind of COVID hangover. We see from all of our consumer sentiment work that the they are prioritizing getting out and doing things, being with people, with the people they love having experiences, whether it's local or it's travel. Uh, we measure this across a, a variety of uh, of ways, but just in a very, <laughs> in a very simple way. Uh, three out of five uh, kind of Gen Z and young, uh, young millennials are clearly prioritizing, you know, experiences over stuff. I mean, that's where they're spending their, their money. That, that number actually jumps to almost three and four for Gen Z and millennials who are in that upper income bracket? Uh, so, uh, and by the, for us, that metric is a household income of one hundred and fifty thousand USD uh, or uh, or up. And that's actually for us that's very important, and for all attractions and experience providers to to think about because we really have a to put it very simply, a kind of bifurcated you know consumer 
landscape, you know, I, you know, I think of it as the haves and the, you know, and the have sums. <laughs> so you have the lower middle income uh, segment, and this applies to the U.S. And, and Europe where, okay, they are being more directly affected by uh, by inflation, by rising cost of living, uh, and a little bit by uh, more the kind of recessionary impacts, which are a bit deeper in Europe than they are uh, in uh, in the U.S. And so, yes, their spend is going to be a bit muted around uh, around travel and around experiences, and they're going to be a bit more price sensitive. But you also have this upper income segment, which you know we see, despite everything that's happening in the world, there's no. I mean, the the gas is on the pedal, like all all the way down. Like they're going for it. They intend to spend, do more. They want to travel more. They want to see more. And also, you know, we've seen an extraordinary shift coming out of the pandemic, which I I, I think it's almost. Uh, I think of it as like a like a post COVID kind of convulsion period that we're in right now. So just just to give you, and this is in a recent report that we've um, a research report on the experiences uh, traveler and the global attractions traveler that we've published over the past couple of uh, months where just a dramatic shift in the demand for small group and private experiences, even around attractions. So as I've been covering this industry for, for many years, we've always seen it's been the iconic visitor attractions that have been the primary driver of tourism. You know, I want to go to London and go to see the the tower i want to go i want to go to the national gallery or i'm going to paris i got to go to the the louvre i've got to go to musée d'orsay and so on and so forth but increasing increase well not just increasingly it's been a dramatic shift as travelers have come back it's not just that i want to get a ticket to the coliseum but i want to have a a private you know or special small group experience with my friends and family i'm going to book that tour that will include the ticket but i want I want all the bells and whistles. Or yes, mm-hmm. I want to go to the top of the uh, you know the edge in in New York with my fiance or with my wife. But I don't just want to go to the top and have a look out. I want to do the the champagne sunset experience, and I'm going to pay twice the price, and we're going to you know linger there and have like that's the kind of extraordinary shift that we're seeing. So my and I've been saying this like, like very clearly one for any experience operator or attraction one understand who your customers are are they more price sensitive or are they a little bit more are they more in the kind of the haves right or maybe you or if you serve both then how can you really think about the products that you offer in a way to get the most out of them or to deliver the best and so a really great you know example could is that you know it's not just the ticket to the top but it's the ticket to the top with the champagne yeah. experience at a special time of day or maybe it's offering a vip behind the scenes experience or a special meal or something that just makes it a little bit more special and there's just an, a real opportunity to to sell more and and to do more for that you know for that right all right best and then i think the one last thought is for the those travelers or visitors that are that are a bit more price sensitive really to think about definitely don't you don't want to get into the discount game i'm 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 always very strong <laughs> vehemently opposed to to discounting unless it's you know it's done in a in a way that really can help you drive demand during low volume periods but but really to think about how can you deliver more uh, maybe deliver more value right or more you know more incentive so maybe build something in to the to the experience to the ticket or through a membership or a subscription that creates a sense of more value for uh, for the guests but don't simply go to discounting especially you know at a time like this when you know we're all feeling pressure you know from the bottom <laughs> from the bottom up in terms of our our balance sheets great advice and um what you've described is exactly what we've been talking about as well and what we've been hearing so um just before christmas i attended the heads of marketing meeting that alva run and bernard donahue talked exactly the same talked through exactly the same scenarios that you just had it is down to the experience people will pay more but they are looking for something that is outside of the ordinary now so it's not just about come to the attraction come to see this thing it's what's what does that package look like how can you exploit what you have 
in a more interesting way for the audience that are already going to come, but they'll probably spend more if you if you have this this VIP package or this this next level package. If we mm. talk about a question for you, so we talked about the haves and the have not as much. So how did you how did you define it? The haves and the haves. The haves and the have sums. The haves I, and I mean, the have yeah. sums. Right. Yeah. Okay. So the haves and the have sums. Where do you think this fits in terms of membership? Because that's been quite a big discussion topic recently. In that during the pandemic, membership sales went up phenomenally, astro- mm-hmm. astronomically actually. Yeah. So it was an yeah. altruistic purchase. You were doing what you could to support your favorite attraction while they couldn't open. What we're starting to see is a decline in people renewing memberships. Um, yeah because of how nervous the cost of living crisis is is making people. And the assumption that um, and Bernard described this, this beautifully is that previously, if you had a membership, so I have a membership to the National Trust, your previous mindset would be, oh, well, let's go to the national, the local National Trust today because that's free, because we've got our membership, we've already paid for that. And you, would, you wouldn't really think about the secondary spend. So, you know, you're going to buy lunch while you're there or you might get something in the yeah. gift shop. Yeah. Whereas yeah. now people are starting to go, mm, well, that's not a free visit for us anymore. So we need to think about um, whether we go, what we spend while we're there. So maybe we take a packed lunch rather than we buy in the cafe, which is obviously then going to start to have a significant effect on the attraction itself. So how can organisations do better with their memberships to kind of help those people that maybe have them and are, and are thinking about letting them go? You know, that's a really, uh, a really tough one, especially in this environment in the UK. And I, I, I think again, it, it comes down to, you know, what more can you, can you layer in right to really make it valuable? So what kind of additional kind of benefits or perks or things can you expand to really, tie that in but I, I, that's something that I, th- I think really has to be addressed at the attraction level and where you and there's there's no way around this you've got to understand your customer and who they are why did they become a member what were the key what were the key drivers and how can you keep that going like I can tell you for us like we were when our kids were younger, we were members of the, you know, the zoo here in Atlanta. We were members of, you know, another, you know, museum, a local science museum that uh, we would take the kids to on a on a regular basis. But you know, as the kids aged out, you know, there was we weren't going as much, right? And there wasn't, you know, there wasn't a need, and their programming or their content was not compelling enough for us to you know, to stay with it, for example. Now, since they've actually in- introduced some things like, you know, at the Science Museum, like you can go to the uh, the observatory and they have cocktails under the stars at night and things like that, which might be a little bit more interesting for, for parents with to still be involved. But, uh, but so I think that's, there's no, I think, blanket, you know, easy answer for the industry as a whole. That's something that you've really got to understand, you know, your triggers and what what do your guests really value the most about the membership and what are things that you can do to really kind of leverage that to, uh, to drive that engagement? But, you know, there's one thing too, I, I'm just going to throw out there. This is maybe more of a kind of an idea I, I think could be, a, a, I don't know, if a million dollar idea or a hundred million dollar idea within this sector. You know, one of the businesses that has been a clear there's a clear use case for travelers is that city attraction, you know, pass, right? Where you come into a city and, and you can buy that pass, you can have access to so many attractions and you get so many visits over the course of uh, four or five days or whatever the duration of the passes that you purchase. But there's a, you know, a missing, uh, I think, business opportunity within the world of experiences, which is the equivalent of like a multi-attraction, mm. uh, you know, membership, there's actually an interesting little startup based in New York called uh, Sesame, which is doing something where you basically you pay an almost a negligible, I think it's like 15 or 20 bucks a year, and you get access to opaque pricing to attractions all over the world. But even just something where you become, uh, you know, so I guess the, the corollary I think of is something like Class, uh, class Pass in the US or, or Gym Pass, where you can you subscribe to the service and you can get access to gyms, you know, all over the country or uh, to, to yoga classes or whatever it might be. And to have, I think there's a huge opportunity for, you know, some entrepreneurial startup to step in and aggregate, 
you know, a lot of this content in a, in a subscription or a membership service where you can go, you can do a zip line, you know, in North Georgia, and then you can go to uh, a national trust experience somewhere in the UK and then you can go, you know, you can do this and you can do that. And to build that in, I think there's an incredible opportunity there for something like that, a, a multi-attraction subscription or, or membership service. Yeah. So I'm going to throw that out as my, hundred billion dollar idea for some <laughs> listener to your to your podcast uh, there you go listeners who's gonna, who's gonna grab it and run with it it's a really good idea there was, see, I, as you were speaking i was just thinking we we work with a number of attractions on the north norfolk in the north norfolk area which is a lovely coastal area um mm-hmm. in the uk and like a, a, a norfolk pass for all of the attractions would be incredible because they're all within you know mm. an hour's drive of each other so something like that could work really well for those regional areas so yeah all right there you go norfolk attractions what are you saying <laughs> hit us up <laughs> okay let's talk about um oh, you wrote a brilliant blog last september called the future of discovery in travel mm. um and oh, it's about thank you. Yeah, very welcome. It's it's excellent. Um, and it's about the big shift in experiences, d- discovery and marketing. So we know that marketing teams are stretched in attractions. They're they're uh-huh. normally on the small side and they and they're doing a million different jobs at once. We also know that they need a really clear strategy and they also need to focus on the right the right time on the right channels for them to find where their existing audiences and where their new audiences are. And we've talked a little bit about you know it's really vital at the moment to know exactly who your audiences are and where they are. This blog, you start off with a really great story about your son. And I wondered if you could just share the story about your son and sneakers. It's a, it's a great start and introduction to this. Uh, Yeah, sure. Sure. I'm happy to. Well, so first, you know, there's a, uh, there's a paradigm within the travel industry. There's a phrase that's used quite a bit called the path to purchase. And there's a, a well-worn paradigm. It's almost accepted like gospel within the industry of, you know, how a traveler goes about finding where they want to go, what they want to do, you know, all of that stuff. And this is, there was a study that I think was done maybe, I don't know, 10, 12 years ago uh, that was sponsored by Expedia that kind of walks through the path to purchase. You know, you start on, on Google, you do a search, and then you statistically you visit you know 38 websites and uh, you know across online travel agencies and review sites like TripAdvisor and whatnot and from that you kind of figure out okay where you want to go and then you go through the actual shopping phase you do your flights and your accommodation and then you and then you get your your things to do or experiences which are often you're booking that the day of travel or before you know very close in or even while you're in in destination so that's the kind of well-worn you know, path of like Google to OTAs to booking sites and, you know, boom, you're off. But I've been, I was just struck by by something. So this happened uh, in the spring where, you know, one day this package arrived at our house and it was this pair of sneakers. It was like this $200 pair of sneakers that my 17-year-old bought. Uh, and I mean, first of all, I have no idea where he got 200 bucks to buy a <laughs> pair of sneakers, but that's a, that's a secondary <laughs> issue. But but then I, so I was just curious, oh, and it was, they were a very, you know, it was like a designer pair of sneakers, like a certain type of Nike or something, but it wasn't something you, I, maybe you'd go to a Nike store and find, I don't, I don't know. But, uh, but then I, well, I just asked him, oh, you know, how did you, like, how did you choose this pair of sneakers? Like, why? Like, what's, you know, how did you find it? And, and you know, you have a teenage boy, you know, they never, they don't talk, right? They don't tell you anything, right? So, so that was like, I'm never going to find out the answer to that. But one of the things that I, I definitely know is I know how he didn't buy those sneakers. I know, you know, he didn't go on to Google. I know he didn't visit 38 different sneaker websites to find, you know, the best sneaker at the best price, the best time. Like he didn't go through all of that process. Now, I mean, did he... F- see somebody on TikTok or a friend of his on Instagram. I don't know that he was a, a friend of his at school who was wearing the sneakers. I have no idea. But the that paradigm of how people find and discover what they want to do, what they're going to do is shifting dramatically, especially for the, you know, that teenage, that Gen Z and even the younger millennial uh, set in a very extraordinary way. Uh, so, mm-hmm. in a great example, I was speaking to um, 
Dan Christian of Dharma, which is a, a tour company who actually would be another great person for you to have on your podcast, by mm -hmm. the way, who's very focused on the passion economy. And he had this quote that I sticks in my head, which is, you know, the tour happened to be in Costa Rica, which basically means increasingly younger people are, they are connected to uh, friends, they're connected to particular brands or experiences, or they're going to see something on TikTok or Instagram, and they're going to say, oh, I want to do that thing. And that is going to drive the whole path to purchase. Mm -hmm. And the, I want to do that thing. Oh, that thing happens to be in Costa Rica, or that happens to be in London or whatever. Could be anywhere. But I want to do that thing with those people. And And by the way, it's not you know, I, I'll say too, you don't just take, I'm just, you know, I'm just a guy who runs a, you know, an event and research company for attractions and experiences, but they don't take my word for it. I mean, just look at what Google has done. I mean, over the past year, they've completely and are continuing to revamp their, in particular, their mobile search experience. And a VP at Google made an extraordinary statement at a conference, a tech conference last summer, where he said, we are seeing 40% of Gen Z, they are turning not to Google, not to maps or search to find like where to go or where to eat uh, nearby. They're turning to Instagram. They're turning to TikTok. Mm -hmm. And it's amazing. They're, and when, when you ask these young people, and there was a great story in the New York Times about this, I think last August or September, where young people were saying, you know, I, they're being asked to compare, let's say, a, a review of a restaurant on TikTok versus a Google review. And it's like, you know, I don't have to read anything, which because, you know, young people aren't reading. They don't have to think. Like they're literally, they're saying, well, I don't have to think. I, I can I can just see the people at the restaurant. I can see them experiencing it. I can see myself in that. And that's the kind of experience I want to have. And that's all I need. And that's an extraordinary, an extraordinary shift. So so then I, okay, so then I think the next question you would probably ask is, okay, so what does that mean for an attraction or you know, an experience <laughs> operator? How do you yeah. deal with that, right? Especially when budgets are stretched and your your marketing team has already got too much to do. You're yeah. suddenly asking them to 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 yeah. take part and create short form video content, right? That that's the bottom line. We know that that is the future of of this type of search. Yeah, that's a massive ask, isn't it? You know, that's far more. It seemed far more complex than sitting down and writing a blog article, for example. There's a lot more involvement in it. I'm not asking. I'm not asking to do anything. I'm. <laughs> I'm just simply saying, look, this is what's happening, and y'all can decide, you know, what you want to do. That's up to you. But there is a profound shift that is underway. It's it's happening so quickly. It's hard to get your arms around. It's very hard to understand. Okay, well. Do I suddenly stop spending my money on Facebook and Google and put everything into TikTok? And no, of course not, right? But because there's still intentional demand on those channels. But if you just and and we detail all of this in the research and the reports too. That I mean, you can just very clearly see it. So in terms of where younger travelers are going to discover things to do, so TikTok has already surpassed Twitter, and I think for Gen Z, it's going to surpass. Facebook within the next, probably in the next year or year or two, because we can already see Facebook is now like it's people my age, like it's Gen X and maybe older millennials, but it's really falling off for uh, for young folks. But it's not an either or. And I, this is always the thing that, you know, that kind of comes up. Oh, well, it's another channel. It's, well, that's, I mean, that's marketing. That's, that's, mm -hmm. that's never going to change. Your marketing teams are always going to be strapped. They're always going to have too much to do. It's how are you going to how are you going to work through that? So yes, you still have to do Google. You still have to do Facebook. You still have to do the photos on Instagram, but now you need to add reels. You need to add short form vertical video. And I would say you just begin by testing. And you know, the best thing you can do, and there's so many great examples of this, if you're, is hire one of these, hire a young person who does this stuff, hire a, you know, a 22 year old who lives in this world and ask them to, just start, you know, creating stuff and give them some license and and just to to do things and and there's so much great guidance out there as well on on that. Uh, and we've got some great content too. Uh, we had an influencer at our Vegas event, a guy named Ravi Roth, who 
is a, an influencer for LGBTQ travel in general, and he gave some incredible sessions on how to you know deliver authenticity through uh, through social content. And he's all like number, but the number one thing: the next time you take a video, make sure it's vertical. Just everything has yeah. got to be vertical first and first and foremost. But just experiment and keep going and start to develop that muscle because it will become very important it already is very important so i had a couple of questions on this topic and and we've had i i have to say we've had a couple of brilliant past podcast guests that have come on and talked to us about about Mm. building great social Mm. community channels and we had danielle nichols and ross ballinger come on from drayton manor which is um a theme park based in the mm. UK. So mm. they they talked a lot about how they had started their TikTok channel and they've just they've just got a really great kind of social community that they've been able to build and it allows them to engage with their community, ask them for feedback. Um and in turn the community feels like they've got their back in decisions that that have been made. So the the theme park went through a rebrand process a little while ago and, yeah. and they were they were really able to kind of engage with their audience because of the the work that they put into it. Now, I can totally see TikTok working for Drayton Manor. Like, even, even even if they hadn't have done it already, I can see it because of the type of people that would go there, the thrill seekers, that kind of Gen Z. But where's the opportunity for the attraction sector that are very kind of family orientated? So I, I think about... Um, we think about the team market that we've talked about. They're thinking about travel and experiences, potentially gap year, that kind of thing. But a lot of the attractions that we work with are really focused on that family marketing. So ultimately, it's going to be the parents that are making those purchasing decisions. Mm-hmm. Is this still a channel that you think that there's opportunity for, for those kind of attractions? Well, fine. The parents might be ultimately paying for it. But, you know, where are the kids? The kids are on TikTok and Instagram. More, they're not on Facebook. So that's number one. And the the best way to get families there is to get kids excited about something. So that's even more of a reason to be on there. And also something that we've seen as well across every social media channel. Well, maybe not everyone, but most certainly is, you know, it starts with kind of the younger, you know, more digitally kind of switched on, you know, generation, but very quickly becomes you know, widely used across across mm-hmm. all generations, right? We've uh, we saw that in Facebook, we saw that in in Instagram. We, you know, we're seeing it in, uh, in you know in Twitter as well. Uh, and and uh, the demographics for you know for TikTok, you know, as well, I think will uh, are I'm sure already rapidly you know evolving to be to cut across a range of generations. So I I, uh, I th- that should definitely be a part of the family kind of marketing uh, plan and to try to reach, you know, parents and show Mm -hmm. in particular kids having an amazing experience at your experiences is great. And by the way, those, those videos too, I point out as well, it's, it's not just platform specific, like, you know, we use TikTok and Instagram well, if that's what we're currently using as because as the language or how we talk about this media format, because TikTok in particular has advanced this incredible idea of watching these 15, 30 second videos and then swiping up to the next one. Um, but this is it's they've identified this extraordinary way to you know connect with people and make an experience or access to information really a really extraordinary shift. And so I think we're going to see that basic principle of what they've learned be adopted by other platforms. So for example, I think back in December, uh, the news broke that Amazon was launching a TikTok style video feed within the Amazon app, initially going to be in the US and a kind of a beta test. So you could actually do discovery shopping within Amazon in a TikTok style video feed. I mean, obviously, Instagram is going all in with reels. You've got on YouTube, you now have YouTube shorts. And I've been noticing when I pop into YouTube every now and again, that sometimes they're experimenting with defaulting to shorts, as opposed to the more, you know, the pull type of YouTube experience that they've done, that that I think we're we're more accustomed to. I have also written about, and I'm kind of waiting for a travel platform and really a travel experiences platform to experiment with a TikTok style shopping experience mm-hmm. on on their website. Because, you know, quite frankly, when I think about 
my 17 year old in his sneakers when he takes his first vacation, right? Or, you know, maybe when he goes off in his f- first college, you know, spring break trip, you know, with his friends. And let's say they go to the beach or something uh, and they're going to look for things to do. I mean, how is he going to find experiences? Is he going to go on to Google or, you know, Viator or Expedia and say, oh, well, let me find fishing trips or let me find this jet ski rental or let me do this? Oh, I think he's going to be on Instagram or one of his friends is going to be mm-hmm. on TikTok and they're going to say, oh, here's, I see this experience of these guys on a boat doing this. Doesn't look like fun. Let's go. Oh, let's go find that. Right. And that's going to drive the search and the, uh, and the booking. So um, I, th- I think that the, the model that TikTok is showing for all of us, I, I expect to see that replicated in some way. And I'm actually in the experiences world and travel in general, I'm still I'm still pretty shocked that you don't have the widespread use of you know a video in the the shopping experience. It's still very much like oh go in, there's the tour, and there, there's all the inclusions, there's the exclusions, or I go onto an attraction site, or there's this ticket, and I can do this, and I can do that, and there's this, and I've got to read all this stuff. These guys, they don't want to read. They want to, oh, there's this, there's this experience. There's this attraction. Let me see myself. And, oh, that's great. I don't give a shit about any of the, all the rules and all the things. And I have to be here at 10 and bring this. No, just show me this thing. Let's do it. That's, that's the shift that I think has got to happen. And it's very common for product owners or marketers. Well, I've got, I've done all this work. I got to put all this detail out, but your customer doesn't, you know, they don't, they don't care. They don't want to know about the sausage and how it's made and all the details. And Yeah, it's a bit like the tipping point when from from like cookery books to cookery shows, isn't it? You know, what's more engaging for someone? Like, I, I, don't get me wrong. I've got a bookshelf full of cookery, cookery books out there. But actually show me someone making it and show me the, the kind of sizzle and show me that I'm going to engage with that more. Kelly, I'm, I, I'm going to go even further. And I will tell you. So one of the things that I did over the pandemic uh, was since we were all cooped up, so I just said, you know, I'm going to learn to become, you know, a better, a better cook, right? Because it was mostly just, you know, hamburgers and, you know, pasta and sauce from a jar, right? Because both my wife and I were working and all crazy and whatnot. So I, and I also, you know, this was, this was in, yeah, 2020, early 2020, mid 2020. So I, and I said, okay, I'm going to, and TikTok was really becoming a phenomenon. So I downloaded TikTok and I started using it. And one of the first things that popped up was uh, a recipe for Thai vegan lemongrass coconut pumpkin soup. And that's never anything I could have thought I would have been able to make. And it was a 30 second video. It wasn't like a detailed recipe or anything. It was just a video of the bowl and you see the hands of the, and there's like nice music in the background and you just see everything that the person is doing. And there's a little text. This is what the ingredient is, then it's next. And so within 30 seconds, I watched this video and I'm like, holy shit, I can, I can do that. I can make that. And that looks really amazing. And so I went and made it and it was amazing. And suddenly it was like, wait, I just watched a 30 second video. I could make something that was really what I thought in my mind would have been a real Mm. complex undertaking. And, and that's, I mean, I think that's an extraordinary outcome from what, you know, TikTok I think has shown from a communication standpoint is how the genius and the possibility of delivering an extraordinary amount of information in a very short amount of time, but more importantly, making the viewer feel like they can relate to it. Like they can participate. I can make that soup. I can have that experience. It's that's, that's the power of that. And no, incredible tour description page or attraction description page with a list of inclusions and exclusions and all of this and you know it's not it's never going to be the same it's never going to be the same a 30 second video has empowered you to be a better chef i love that doug well there you go (laughs) (laughs) i want to talk a little bit about dynamic pricing so um, we are we Gosh, we've we've been talking for ages and I feel like we've covered loads today, but but I think this is really important to talk about. So there's different pricing attra- strategies for attractions at the moment. So you've got the traditional kind of static price model where operators sell a ticket for the same, ty- same price, no matter when that ticket is purchased or when it's yeah. going to be used. You've got variable pricing strategy 
which might be based on the day it's purchased or the time slot for when the ticket is purchased. And each day is priced according to demand. I kind of, I kind of like this approach. We had, um, we had Simon Addison from Roman Bars come on and talk about their approach to this. And I think I find this approach quite empowering for the visitor because it gives them the choice of when they're going to come dependent on what they want to pay for that experience. But dynamic pricing is a strategy where attractions can adjust the prices of their offerings to account for changing demand. So, for instance, like an airline will shift seat prices based on seat type or the number of remaining seats and the type uh, time until the flight as well. Now, that's what some attractions do, but it's actually quite a small minority at the moment, isn't it? And I think, are we seeing an uptake in dynamic prices or are we still finding that it's just the real, the big players that can actually use this strategy at the moment? Yeah. Uh, well, so first, I mean, from our surveying, uh, like it's less than 1% of attractions and operators are are doing any type of dynamic uh, pricing. And just to be very clear, the, the distinction between dynamic and variable. So, you know, a variable is, you know, is something like, uh, okay, I'm going to have a different weekend price versus a weekday price or a different price for a 9am entry on Monday versus a 3pm entry on Saturday or something. But but those prices stay the same over the course of the season or over the course of the year. Whereas dynamic, it's like, okay, uh, it looks like my three o'clock slot on Saturday is is nearly a capacity. We've only got you know 10% left. Let's increase the price by 5% or 7%. Um, so there's still pretty low uptick, very low, less than 1%. However, we've also seen in our surveying in terms of technical technology related priorities, that is one of the, in fact, the top priority for visitor attractions uh, heading into next year. Like, uh, I think it was 57% so that they were, they were looking at it uh, very oh, seriously and were quite interested, which is a really oh, big, yeah. yeah, it's a really big deal. And uh, so one piece to this is well, there are a lot of, okay, there's a lot of complexities. So yes, there are a number of providers in the market, technology companies that are stepping in and offering this capability. These could be either, you know, companies like there's a company in the US called Diginex, which is basically, it's a layer on top of a ticketing system. There are other companies like uh, Schmitz uh, out of Switzerland, which is more of a ticketing system provider that has a dynamic pricing layer. And there's some other company, there's some other booking system providers like Mentrata and others that are layering in dynamic pricing within their booking system capability. But there's still some big issues that need to be, you know, addressed within the space. I mean, one is there's still just a, a gap in just the fundamentals of the technology. Like mm-hmm. you need to have a, a robust, a solid ticketing system and just control of your basic inventory and and pricing. And once you have that, then we can start to think about, you know, dynamic pricing. That's that's one. Then the next piece is, you know, what are the signals or what are the triggers, right, to to drive that? And it's going to vary a lot from attraction to attraction, but it could be things like weather. It can be things like, you know, demand. There could be things like, you know, maybe, you know, there's, you know, the World Cup in Qatar and, mm-hmm. and, you, and there's going to be increased demand for, you know, a great attraction there that you would want during that time when, you know, the, <laughs> the destination is going to be overflowing. You know, you can increase your prices. So there's a lot of different kind of factors uh, and inputs there. And there's a lot of debate about it too. Uh, I think at a consumer level, you know, there's that old thing of, well, you're sitting on the airplane and, you know, the guy next to you spent half the price on the plane ticket, you know, does that, you know, frustrate you? But I think increasingly consumers have come to, you know, to understand this, it's become pretty, you know, commonplace. And I think people will understand it. And I also think it's, as well, it's a, it's an, an opportunity for attractions to not just to make a little more money, but it's also to, as I said, I think at the outset to provide a better guest experience, I think, especially for, you know, for tier one attractions and top destinations. I mean, that's, that's got to be the top priority. How can you disperse your guests in a more effective way? Because there's no question. I mean, we had a little, you know, we had a little pandemic-induced uh, hiatus from over tourism, but it's already back. And in some places, fast and furious, you know, where and attractions are going to are going to be very quickly, you know, overrun, especially when Asia really opens up. And 
you know, when it comes back. So how can you use smart pricing strategies to create a better guest experience, to have a better impact on your attraction and on the local community? I think it's not just about uh, making money. Uh, so yeah, I, I, it's, I, this is going to be a, a major theme within the sector over the next couple of years. And, and I would expect the industry to take it up pretty rapidly. Yeah, I really like the, the definition of, you know, putting your prices up actually gives the customer a better experience because it, it comes down to, I guess it comes down to the operational factors again, isn't it? It's like, you know, if you know you're going to be extremely busy for this period, you put your prices up, you know, a, a, a touch, but that yeah. touch allows you to hire X amount more visitor experience people that can you know greet your guests and give them that experience so it's all about it still is all about the customer which is really really important and piece two it can also potentially enable an attraction to lower prices during certain times right if you can yield up during certain times you can make the attraction more accessible like it's not it again it's not just about making making more money i mean it's that's certainly should be a benefit right but it's it's also about can be about making your venue more accessible, about making the guest experience better. Yeah, and I think that's the message that has to be driven to your audience as well, isn't it? Because otherwise it, it just feels a little bit unjust, but they don't, mm. they're not being given the information to to understand that actually this is a better decision for them. Now, there's so much that we could talk about. We are, we're out of time. We're yeah. basically out of time. <laughs> but we always end our podcast by asking our guests to share a book that they love with us. Um, have you prepared one for us today? Yeah, I have. Uh, and actually, this is a book I recommend quite a bit. And it might be it's not like a typical book because I know you've got you know lots of great recommendations and um, there's lots of amazing business books out there. But one of the books that has always stuck with me, it's actually it's a it's a service manual. It's called Delivering Knock Your Socks Off Customer Service. And it's a short paperback. It's I think it's like 109 pages or even less. It was written as a manual for customer service teams. But actually, as I read it, it struck me as basically it's it's a guide for being a great human being and how to treat people in an extraordinary way and how to respond to questions when you don't know the answer, how to make people feel like you care about them. And, uh, you know, one of the things my wife has has always said is, um, you know, people never remember what you say. Really, I mean, they, but they remember how you made them feel, and uh, so to me, that book is—it's basically—it's a guidepost to leaving people feel like they matter to you, and that you're going to serve them well, and that also ties into your to your brand. Like everyone is their own personal brand, and mm-hmm. every action that you have with every person is a as a reflection of that of that brand. Uh, so. Uh, yeah, so that's that book impacted me in in that way, and I've always kind of thought about it as a way to be a guidepost for how I interact with, with everybody, with I mean, not just with my my customers or clients or our, you know our event partners or our employees, with you know with my my friends, with my family, with you know with everybody. Doug, that so. book that is a book that is right up my street. And that's going to go top of my pile. And I'm going right. to buy it. I think I'm going to buy it for my team as well. Highly <laughs> um, recommended. Highly recommended. As yeah. ever, listeners, if you want to win a copy of Doug's book, then if you head over to our Twitter account and you retweet this episode announcement with the words, I want Doug's book, then we will enter you into a draw to potentially win it. Doug, thank you. Um, I'll, you'll have to come back on because there's so many other topics that we could have covered. So come back in 2024 and we'll see how some of these predictions and things that we've talked about have worked out this year. But thank you. It's been lovely yeah. to chat. Hey, can I can I just quickly close with, can I do a, a, like a very small shameless plug? Um, on, is that okay? On, <laughs> well, just for, for all of those attractions who are listening, we have the arrival, our arrival uh, Berlin conference right before ITB, March 5, 6, and 7 in Berlin at the amazing Estrell Hotel, where all of the things that, you know, Kelly has been bugging me about over the past, what has it been, 45 minutes or an hour or so, you know, we have a couple of days just devoted to all of these topics and the world of experiences and the future. And we've got speakers from, uh, from you know, from Google and Get Your Guide and some, uh, and actually the Moco Museum, which is all in on dynamic pricing, by the way. And they're going to be leading a uh, an in depth workshop on what they're doing and 
among so much else on distribution and growth. And you're going to meet a lot of incredible experience operators and attractions and distributors and technology providers. It's really, for us, it's our vision to create the hub of the experiences sector for travel and to help this industry uh, grow and improve. So, uh, and Kelly's going to be there. I was going to say, Doug, right? you know, the highlight of it is that I'll be there <laughs> speaking well, That's right. That's right. Which we're really looking forward to. So, uh, yeah. So please do consider joining us. We promise you're gonna have an amazing time with an amazing community and, you know, learn, learn tons. So thank it's you. a great lineup of speakers and it really does look like an absolutely incredible conference. We'll put all of the details in the show notes. So none of you will miss out and you'll be able to um, book online. And even if you don't make the conference, go and check out the Arrival website because some of the reporting on there is really phenomenal and so, so valuable to the sector. And um, I've learned a lot in the last couple of weeks just reading through some of the reports that Doug's been able to send me through. So that is well worth a visit, everyone. Doug, thank you. It's been fabulous. Thank you, Kelly. Thanks for listening to Skip the Queue. If you've enjoyed this podcast, please leave us a five-star review. It really helps others find us. And remember to follow us on Twitter for your chance to win the books that have been mentioned. Skip the Queue is brought to you by Rubber Cheese, a digital agency that builds remarkable systems and websites for attractions that helps them increase their visitor numbers. You can find show notes and transcriptions from this episode and more over on our website, rubbercheese.com forward slash podcast.